Father, and this is a podcast about how to live out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. Each episode, you'll hear me chatting with experts and friends about how to understand the gospel and how it's good news for us every day. This season, we've been looking at relationships and asking the big question about how the gospel transforms our relationships. And I just wanted to park that to the side for a while and take a look at some more general topics of everyday life. In particular, I've been thinking about this season of COVID and wondering about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for us in this specific season. And there's been lots of discussion going around on the impact of isolation and this pandemic regarding our mental health. And that's what I want to talk about today. So in this episode, I caught up with Chris Cipollone to talk about mental health and in particular depression and anxiety. Chris wrote the fantastic book called Down Not Out about some of his journey facing mental health challenges and the reason why it's such a good book and why Chris is so good to listen to is that he talks about these topics which are normally reserved for behind closed doors, you know, and he brings them out into the open with lots of honesty and vulnerability and he approaches it all through the lens of the gospel. I don't think I've heard someone talk about it quite the way that he does. It's been so encouraging to me. Uh, This is one of the most refreshing conversations I can remember having about such an important topic. Now, before we jump into the conversation, I do want to say that this content isn't intended to be a substitute for professional advice, and you should always consult a mental health professional or GP with questions about your own condition. If you need to, please reach out and talk to someone about how you're going. Let's get into the conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you are encouraged. Okay, Chris Cipollone, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great. I, Chris, I, um, I first heard about you. I was Googling uh, for books about uh, mental health and anxiety and depression, and I came across your book, Down, Not Out. I just want to say before we get going, I really love the book. I love it. I, I uh, was so impressed by finding something that was biblically based, gospel-centered, and that kind of led me to Jesus. Um, and especially in something that was, I think, a really tough thing to talk about or a really hard topic to write books about, at least anyway. Um, can I ask, as a way of introduction, can you tell me something about yourself and also what led you to writing a book like that? For sure. Um, yeah, a bit about myself. I'm a Sydney guy. I'm, I'm Aussie, uh, Sydney born and bred, uh, married to Lara for, for 12 years, and we've got four young kids who are, I guess, not so young as they used to be, but uh, ranging in age from nine down to four. And uh, yeah, what inspired me to write the book? I mean, you said gospel-centered, which is a huge compliment. Uh, the book is really me at my most raw in many ways. Uh, as you said, the book's about mental health, but I don't just write theoretically. I, I wanted to write from my own experience as well. So mixing my my theological training with my lived experience. And to be honest with you, it was the gospel itself that let me write it because I had to go through this question of, well, do I want to make myself this vulnerable and do I want to publish something which shows me at my lowest? And I thought, well, if the gospel is that we're recognizing our need before the Lord, then I can do that with security. And so it was it was a difficult journey of living with depression for many years that led to a real low point in my life that started some journaling, which turned into the book. And now I get to talk about it, which is a huge privilege to be able to bless people with that. Yeah. Was it therapeutic at all for you? Was there a process? Was it a helpful process for you to write the book? Yeah, it started 
I'd always dreamed of writing a book, but when I started writing my thoughts down, I thought this would be really cool to turn into a book, but I never thought it would actually happen. And it was only once I had finished writing and I thought, oh, I'll take a chance and I'll submit it to a publisher. And, and I'd written stuff before and I knew what a rejection letter looked like. And um, <laughs> it, it shocked me that the first publisher I sent it to uh, eventually signed a contract um, to write the book. So yeah, that, that was a bit of a process of kind of coming to terms with the fact that, wow, this is really exciting. Um, but then also the realization set in of, do I actually want people to know this <laughs> about mm. myself? So it was, it was multifaceted. There was, this is really cool, but then it made way for, this is kind of daunting, but this is the right thing to do because I think it will bless people. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it has, and I think it does. It blessed me reading it as a reader, so I appreciate it a lot. And I think the fact that you were vulnerable, like especially about this topic, to me seems really important. Is that important to be really open and honest about things like depression and anxiety? I think so. I mean, I'm naturally a bit of a hard on your sleeve kind of guy, anyway. And again, I just think if you if you apply the Christian worldview to the concept of vulnerability there's absolutely room for us to be vulnerable. Like there is nothing about the gospel that suggests that vulnerability should threaten who we are. In fact, I think vulnerability confirms what God says about the world, that we are, we're fragile and we're finite, but we believe in a permanent, infinite God who, who saves us in the midst of our fragility. So, I mean, I guess you can overly glorify difficulty and you can overly celebrate hardship, but at the same time, if you're not willing to show the weak points of your life, I think there's you're missing out on something as a Christian because it it confirms that you're dependent on the Lord. Mm, yeah, you talk about it in your book. So, would you mind um, sharing a little bit of your story that led to the events that took place in the in Down Not Out? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, the book picks up in what really I say was simultaneously my breaking point, but also my turning point. And that mm. happened uh, six and a half years ago, almost seven years ago, actually. Um, no, sorry, six years ago. I'm about to turn 36. And on the week of my 30th birthday, I, through a long journey of spiraling with depression and anxiety, um, ended up getting voluntarily admitted into a psych hospital. And um, I was six weeks from graduating Bible college I had a ministry position on the table that I needed to make a decision about and I had just been spiraling for, for years and people who were close to me knew that I wasn't doing that great but probably didn't know the extent. And so there was one night in September 2014 that I was meant to make a decision about this ministry position and I was just such a ball of anxiety that I, I said to my wife one night, I need more help and I'd been seeing a psychologist and I'd started taking medication, but it just wasn't enough. And so um, Lara, my wife, super supportive and very gracious, knew someone who'd been in a psychiatric hospital. And I mean, that, that brought up all sorts of connotations for me. You know, you think straight jackets, you think institution and all that kind of stuff. So going from being the student pastor who knew everything about the Bible and was about to head into ministry to the guy that would spend his 30th birthday in a psych hospital. I mean, that's where the, that's where the down part of the down not out comes in. And mm. um, the book picks up on a particular moment as I was in hospital where I actually uh, fainted and passed out. And that, that's a story unto itself. And 
really like just thinking as a man and as a person and as a pastor and, and as a Christian, like, man, it doesn't get much worse than this. This is a real low point. And yet God was incredibly gracious to me in that moment in just confirming actually through the words of a song that God is present in all seasons of life and who I am before being a husband and a father and a pastor and all that kind of stuff is ultimately I'm a beloved son. And when you are in the depths of depression and to be honest, find it almost impossible to love yourself, the truths of the gospel actually are exactly what you need in that moment. And and I don't think Christianity offers um, simple answers necessarily, but if you actually do the work um, in conjunction with what we know of medical practice and psychological practice and all those things, I think our worldview is really, really powerful in this space. And I, I think we need to be talking about this more because it makes a difference. Yeah. So for you, you say that that was like a turning point. Yeah. So was it something that you kind of had to go to that depth um, in order to experience the truth of the the biblical claims, you know, about who God is and who he is for us? Or, you, you know, like, is it was it a turning point in, in another way? Like, what do you mean when you say it was a turning point there? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, it shouldn't have taken something like that to teach me who God is, but sometimes we have to learn from our own, you know, experiences. And you, you read one thing in scripture and it's not until you have to live it out in a gritty way that you kind of yeah. realize on a deeply functional level what it means. Um, yeah, I, I think in the turning point, so the words of the song that came into my head were, were desert song. Um, and, and there's a refrain in it, and this is what came into my head as I was in the hospital was all of my life in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. And I guess in that way to, to, to sing in every season of life, you have to go through many seasons of life. And mm. I guess uh, one of the things I say when I talk about my story is I think I spiraled into depression in many ways because I was I had an inflated sense of optimism heading into my adult years. And so as I started to kind of live a little bit more and, and grow up a little bit more and see that the world could be a dark place sometimes, that I found that really hard because I think I had an unhealthily inflated view of what life was going to offer me. I, I know psychologists talk about this as the reality gap. And um, I think realizing that there was that gap really confronted me and started making me question what I was entitled to in the world and really who God was as well as a Christian. And so um, for me, for my own story, and I, I wouldn't say necessarily for everybody, but I think sometimes we do have to reach points of suffering and we do have to hit breaking points for us to really deep in our hearts, wrestle with some things that we may have only ever known as theory. And um, right. I love what Paul Tripp says about suffering. He says that there's no neutrality. Mm. He says that if you're a Christian and you suffer in any way, it either forces you to run towards God and come to him weary and burdened, or it you just run away from him and don't want anything to do with him. But being the same, that's not really an option. <laughs> and I, I can really attest to that, that suffering really produces something deeper. And it, as, as Romans 5 talks about, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, hope and hope that doesn't put us to shame. And, and I've always loved that paradigm because it means that God doesn't let anything be wasted. 
That's so good. So you opening up and sharing your story, what's been the impact of that? How, what, what sort of conversations have you had? Have, have you found that people have been really wanting to talk and this has allowed them to be able to talk? Yeah, absolutely. I think to have the, the blessing to be able to normalize it in the church has just been such a joy for me to be able to, I suppose, see the redemptive side of my story and be able to bless other people and say, look, no doubt our stories will be a little bit different, but there is a lot of common ground here. And I know what the darkness feels like. And I'm telling you that God really does make a difference has just been so great. Um, there's common questions. You know, I think there's a, there's a, it's not so much, I don't think Christians doubt that mental illness is real. I think where Christians get confused still is the role of our faith. Like to what extent can I just Mm. pray it away? Am I allowed to take medication? What about psychological theory and all that kind of stuff? There's, there's common questions that come up and where I come from in the book and in my own personal philosophy here is that um, I, I, th- I think of it like Batman with his utility belt, like um, to, to utilize every resource at your disposal. And through the field of psychology, I mean, we've learned a lot about the brain that God has given us. There's also a lot we don't know. And, th- and that for me is a moment of theological reflection as well. But I'm not, my, my message is not to pit theology against psychology. But my point is to say, if you only deal with it psychologically as a Christian, you're missing out on a key piece of the puzzle and that's the theological piece as well. And that that's a lot of what people want to know about is how does our faith speak or not speak into this situation? Right. I felt that reading the book, like almost like, oh, this feels naughty. Like, like it was kind of like really bold the way that you did. But I'm really glad that you kind of presented the truth of the gospel in regard to mental health and, yeah. and these big topics like it was really it was really bold but i think if we really believe it well then it's kind of got to be doesn't it totally and i think when people here believe it it's like are you saying if i have more faith my depression will go away i'm like no i'm not saying that and it's not that simple but again like we're almost bashful to 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 work out what faith means here because i think i think faith has been um poorly thought about in the past in relation to mental health we're scared to go there but Actually, I think there is deeper reflection to be done. And I think this concept of identity, as I said before, like that idea of being 30 and hitting rock bottom and that question of who am I, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a question that we all wrestle with and particularly when life is not going well and who am I, where's my dignity, what am I worth, is there any point in me still being here? These really heavy questions that you wrestle with, well, what does God say about me and what are the implications of that? That's got to be a question that we ask ourselves for sure. Yeah, totally. Can I follow up on that in a second? I want to go back a little bit. You you talked a bit about the church, and um, you said we ha- you said something like we've got to talk about these things in mm. the church. My feeling is, tell me if, if this is wrong. There is a stigma around mental health in society, um, and I I kind of feel like that's in the church too. Is it especially in the church? Like you know, we don't we know this isn't true, but like. Sometimes we feel like we we have an answer and it's Jesus, so therefore my life should get figured out. We know that's not true, but it feels implicit in some ways. Like, is is that is that stigma a real thing? I think it's changed really quickly. I see across generations it's different. Like yeah. when I speak at churches, there's always Q and A, um, and it starts getting a little contentious around the topic of prayer. 
Like what's the role of prayer in this space? What should we expect of prayer, answers to prayer, healing to prayer? And I mean, I write a whole chapter on healing in the book and I just think we, we cannot underestimate what God's able to do for sure. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't box him into little prayers. Like we should pray big prayers. Um, at the same time, you know, our journey may look different to an instantaneous change. And so just being careful about how we speak about prayer in the context. Um, what, what I've seen in the church, actually, it's been really interesting. I think the biggest thing I think the church needs to learn now in mental health space is to realize that depression and anxiety are more often than not a chronic illness. And, and what I mean by that is I think in the church, we know that depression is real and anxiety is real. And there are clinical conditions that mean that there is biological stuff going on in the brain. Where I think we don't fully understand the landscape in my experience is that that's often a journey, not just of a few weeks, but it's, it's years and sometimes even decades for some people. And I think where we fall down a little bit is on the pastoral advice of, yeah, you should totally go and see the psychologist. And if the doctor prescribes medication, you should totally take it, which is great. That's, that's, that's great. And it's supportive. But if that's the same as saying, oh, in six weeks, you'll be right. That, that's not actually what happens. And I think right. that's where we need to deepen our understanding of mental illness, not, not in the stigmatization as much as the, I think, underestimation of how long it can go on for in someone's life, because that, that can be really damaging when you say you're ready to walk beside someone and then they get a little bit too hard and you walk away mm-hmm. from them. That's kind of the worst thing that you can do because you're showing a kind of conditional love that the person is already feeling about themselves. And um, that, that's my biggest prayer for the church is we learn to walk next to people for a long time and not just for a little bit of time when it's easy. Yeah, right. Well, then, all right, before we get into that bit, how does Jesus actually make a difference? How does he meet in depression and anxiety? If we're going to walk together through stuff, like, and if the idea is to be pointing to Jesus along the way, how does he, how does Jesus make a difference? How does, how does the power of the gospel actually work in regard to this particular topic? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. I, the first thing that comes to mind and it's, it's Paul's words, not Jesus, but I'll come back to Jesus is I find it so interesting in that famous one Corinthians 13 passage when Paul's talking about how we use our gifts to bless one another. And he says, love is so many things. And the first thing he says is love is patient. Mm. And I just think that's, such a telling thing that he talks about love as patience. And then when I think about God, his patience throughout the generations for Israel, uh, Jesus, his patience for humanity, his patience with the disciples, and and really the fact that God becomes so impatient, if I can dare to put it that way, that he realizes that the law is not going to justify the people he sends Christ. And that's that's kind of his moment of impatience is that he's going to do something about it. And Jesus himself becomes the solution to generations of wandering and generations of walking away. And Christ brings us back to God. And I just think God is so infinitely patient with each of us in our shortcomings. We just, I just don't know how often he must have facepalm moments when he looks at our life. And, um, then I guess the more that we can reflect that with other people to say, this is going to be an uncomfortable journey. This is going to be a gritty journey. 
and I'm going to have to be patient with you and I'm going to have to choose the way of love and I'm not always going to understand it, but I'm going to be committed to you. Well, if Christ hadn't treated us that way, well, we'd be in all sorts of trouble. But mm. but God is so patient with us and his love is so enduring that the more we can reflect that gospel-centered kind of love with others, I think that is powerful in any sort of chronic illness, including into mental health. Yeah, that's really great. So, look, I, I have I don't have depression or anxiety. I don't struggle with those things myself personally. So, I feel like I want to put that out there in case I ask a question in a way that's not a helpful <laughs> way to put it. Um, but the way that it seems to me is a lot of the experience is a felt experience. Mm. So. How do we then, how, do, how does the truth of the gospel meet us in that felt way um, when a lot of the answers seem to be no truth? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think feelings are such an important, important part of a mental health journey. And what I mean by that is I think generationally, like I'm kind of, yeah, being 35, I'm kind of between generations, at least in the part of the world that I live in. And it sounds silly and little, but I've noticed that older generations tend to start a sentence with, I think, dot, 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 and younger right. generations talk about, I feel. And look, maybe, right. maybe that's just me splitting hairs, but no. what is clear is that feelings have this currency amongst younger people that they've never had before. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. There's there's good things to that. I think I see greater levels of empathy this desire to understand, to listen, to see somebody else's perspective, to, to try and walk in somebody else's shoes, that, that they're beautiful. Where it can become tricky, particularly when you're wrestling with depression and anxiety, is what do you do with your feelings? Because inherently, uh, if there is something chemical going on in your brain, sometimes your feelings are going to betray you. And, and for example, in, in real terms, what do you do when you feel like God has abandoned you, which is a very easy feeling to have when you are depressed? Yeah. Does that actually mean God has abandoned you? No. And so it's hard because feelings on the one hand carry this real currency and this real meaning to each of us now. And yet sometimes feelings do need to be challenged. Like the feeling is real. I feel abandoned and I need to acknowledge that and validate that. But that doesn't mean I'm actually abandoned. And so scripture becomes really, really important in this because really the truths of scripture, and if, if you hold to an authority of scripture, then that has to speak more powerfully beyond my feelings and it has to have a greater word. And I don't have to like, I don't have to feel it on an emotional level. Like I don't have to be like over the moon instantly that I know that God has not forsaken me, but just to know that deep in my soul when yeah. I'm feeling lonely that's a that's a powerful counter voice that I think needs to challenge the feelings to to a large degree. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. So how how then you know? Often I feel like these topics are untouchable, right? You talked about that in the book, um, in when you're recounting that experience in the hospital, where there were certain areas that even in there people weren't willing to talk about. Yeah. Um. Often things like depression, anxiety, to me, it feels like these are untouchable topics. And my role, so I'm a pastor of a church, so it feels sometimes like people, the impression I get is 
don't talk to me about Jesus. Don't talk to me about faith. I've got real problems. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I need, I, need a, I need a different answer. I need something different. But everything that you're saying seems to be, well, it has to go together. Yeah. Like whatever. It, it's probably not just one answer, but whatever it is, it kind of has to go together. Yeah. Is that, how does that work? <laughs> like, how do we create relationships where we're allowed to talk about it and we're allowed to apply you know, um, faith and trust in God into these conversations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that question of how do we as the church interact in this space is really important. And I think if we understand what our role is, I think beautiful thing ha- things happen. If we confuse what our role is, it can be damaging. So what I mean is if the church tries to occupy the space of the doctor or of the psychologist, I think that's where we go wrong. So if we think our role is to treat one another, to give all the answers, to diagnose even, I mean, it just, we run into trouble. We need to be quick in the church to say, and as pastors to say, like, have you got a GP? Like, that's a really good question to ask because a GP can open up a whole world of, of medical options for somebody who might need help. In saying that though, one of the things I learned in my journey is the flip side of that is that psychologists and doctors Uh, can't occupy the space of the church. And so the church is actually really important in that our role is not to treat one another, but our role is to love one another. And in many ways, that's, that's harder because that's a grittier journey. That's walking side by side. That's, that's having someone over for dinner who may not want to talk a whole lot. Like it's, it's not always easy, but I think the more, the more we can listen, we, we, we ought to speak, but we need to be slow to speak. We need to be willing to understand where someone's coming from, to hear their grief, to hear their lament, to just say, I'm, I'm so sorry you're going through that. And look, there, there may well be a time and there is a time to, to challenge certain assumptions and to, you know, for example, if someone says, God's, well, God's just abandoned me. Well, you, you can't let that be the end of the conversation and say, yeah, yeah, he has abandoned you. Like that's, that's not a loving piece of counsel, but I think we've got to recognize the season where people are in. And yeah. I think there are two main stages. There's, In many ways, there's a season of survival and a season for reflection. And when someone is just in the depths of despair or at the heights of anxiety, that's not really the time to give quick advice to say, oh, here's how you get out of it. Probably the best thing you can do at that point is to say again, like, have you got a GP? And would you like me to go with you to the appointment? Um as that journey continues and there's more reflection done and I think you can absolutely ask questions, but to not be quick to jump to simplistic solutions. And, and I think in, in real ways, again, I just think it sounds like such a stereotype, but, but love has to be the way like yeah. show somebody how loved they are by God and by us, man, yeah. that's powerful because to be honest, to be brutally honest, very often when you're depressed, you hate yourself. And the person who you don't want to be around the most is yourself. And so for someone to come beside you and go, do you know what? You have dignity because you are loved by the Lord and I love you. Like that is such a balm to the assumptions that you're making about yourself. And so we need to be able to talk about this stuff, but I just encourage you to do it by a lot of walking and a lot of listening and some talking, but not an overwhelming amount where you're just trying to treat somebody. 
I feel like um, so often in myself, I want the answer to be, um, wow, you know, this is how Jesus can fix you. <laughs> and in, in our pride and my pride often, I feel like I know the answer for people. Yeah. But what it sounds like what you're saying is, and and don't get don't please don't hear that as me saying I know I know how to fix things like this. I don't have fixy problems, but I think that's the tendency in us all is we want to go. You just need to trust in Jesus. You know, you just need to trust in Jesus more. Yeah, you know what I mean. There's the success story. Um, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear how people got over the problem, not uh walking through it. Yeah, totally. One of the most helpful things I ever heard was from a psychologist friend and she she said there's a psychological theory where they encourage people to just sit with things, sitting with discomfort. I just thought, man, we don't do that. And, um, yeah. you know, in real terms, like as a Christian, it, it hinges on this, and I talk about this in the book, it, it hinges on this one little word, but it makes such a difference in how we walk with people. And it's whether we use the word and or but. And, and the example of that is I mentioned the idea of God um, abandoning us. If we say, um, I know God is there, but I feel like he's abandoned me, that kind of has the final word. Whereas what what my psychologist friend was encouraging me to think was, uh, I know God is there and I feel like he's abandoned me. That just lets us sit with a with a deeper truth and to not push the discomfort away because God often works really well through discomfort. There's a lot of refinement that can happen through discomfort and we shouldn't we shouldn't push that away or wish that away too quickly because God is often producing something in us so much richer. And so yeah. to be able to sit with the discomfort, to make space for it, to say to someone, man, that sucks that you feel that way. And at the same time to say, hey, what does Romans 8 say about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God? You know, you can't assume that those words will automatically remove the feeling, but if you can just sit with that and and present the truth of what God is saying to you while leaving room for the feeling. Ironically, I think you end up achieving what you were trying to achieve in the first place by putting a Band-Aid on it and wishing it would go from someone's life. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and I love that distinction between the and and the but. I feel like that sums up so many Psalms, you know, like yeah. it's like that's what the Psalms are. They're like, I feel horrible. Life isn't working out how I want. And God, you are still great rather than, but, you know, whatever. That observation about the Psalms is actually such a good point because it means that, again, in the church, we we know things are true about the gospel and we do have to find our anchor in things that we know are true. And ultimately that is God's love through Christ. And, and we can't shake on that. But at the same time, I love that our worldview lets us also lament and grieve and you know, culturally, we want to run away from that stuff. But but the Bible is saying, no, nah, like delve into that space, you know, get yeah. into it and, and unpack it and feel it. And as you say, and so often as David, you know, concludes, but, but in the midst of all of that, he will trust in God's unfailing love. And I, I just love that we have room for both of those realities. Right. I, I think that's actually so much better than, you know, the black and white um my problem's fixed, therefore I will worship God versus, you know, yeah. I, my, my problems aren't fixed and I'll, yet I will worship God. Yeah. Um, that's actually more real. There's something more real about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, another thing that I, was interesting to me reading your book, you talked about how how it was you were too optimistic in some ways and that's actually 
you know, um, you put hope in 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 too many things. It sounded like you were saying, you know, it was a step toward, you know, um, depression or however you would like to say it. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're in a season of that as a a culture, a society, a city, a, a country, a world, maybe. Mm-hmm where this coronavirus has put everything on hold. And if mm-hmm. even if life was sort of mediocre before, we're realising now that some of the simplest things are actually the best things and we yeah. took them for granted. And so whatever we put our hope in, whether it was walking to the shops with a friend to get a coffee, well, at least in Melbourne where I am, <laughs> that's not doable right now. <laughs> All of that optimism is, you know, it's been stripped from us. How does how do these sort of, it feels like things are uncertain. Mm. What do you think about that? We were emailing a little bit before um, we did this recording and you mentioned how you think um, uh, these conversations are even more important now in a coronavirus world. Yeah. Why, why do you think that? I just think there is so much to learn from this time. And look, I, I don't want to, you know, it's sensitive because I don't want to make light of the fact that people are dying and you know, people's well-being is at stake and people are losing their jobs and we need to be careful not to make light of that. But by the same token, if we're not asking ourselves the question, what is God teaching us here? I think we're going to miss something big, perhaps that we will never get back uh, for, for one lifetime. You know, it's been about 100 years since the Spanish flu. Like this might be the only time that the world slows down like it is now. Right. And as you say, to, to, to wrestle with, well, what is promised in life? What am I actually guaranteed of? Like, I just realized I was watching a history documentary the other day and I realized actually, like, I was born in the 1980s. My lifetime in terms of a lack of a, a world war is actually the anomaly, not the norm. Mm-hmm. And so stuff like this is actually more normal as you zoom out historically and, and go across spaces as well and realize that actually this stuff happens. And so it raises the question of, well, what, what am I actually entitled to? What does God actually promise in this life? And, and what is only going to be ultimately fulfilled in the new creation? And I think, mm-hmm. as you say, the more you can find your satisfaction in the little things, like I think there's something beautiful there. And I think as, as troubling as it is to have earthly security be taken away from you and it does mess with you psychologically and again i think mental health and the mental health impact of covid i mean i'm seeing on the ground is so huge and i I, i've heard from other statistics from organizations like lifeline like the amounts of calls that they're getting are just off the charts like this this kind of thing messes with people and you know you really have two conclusions at that point and this is what i really had to go through six years ago is when, when you feel that deep despondency, that deep disillusionment, you either, you either give up on life or you believe that there's something else to live for. And so obviously giving up is not a great option. Choosing what else to live for. And that, that's where we start to f- try and find our answers in all sorts of things. And, you know, we, we move off grid or we, we have a tree change or we, you know, we do whatever, we restructure our mortgages so we have more time with our kids. You know, we can we can apply the changing world from COVID in a whole host of ways. But I think the deepest lesson to learn is to see 
this world is not going to give me everything that I want. And actually that's okay because there is an eternity to come where the full fruition of wellness will be realized. Now that doesn't mean that we give up on life. And that's a question that I wrestle with in the book. Yeah. How does, how does Paul say in Philippians chapter one to die is gain. It is better to me to, for me to be with the father. When, when you're deep in depression, that by itself can feel like a dangerous word. And it is, if it's taken out of context, right. when we factor in what else he says in that very verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain. When we start thinking about hope, where I have been able to find my hope since hitting rock bottom, my hope is not that my life will be comfortable. The hope that I have that does not put us to shame is the hope of the new creation, but also the hope that every day I wake up on this earth for as long as God gives me, I wake up with purpose. And my purpose is to glorify him, to love him, and to love my neighbor as myself. And if that's our purpose, if our purpose is, as one psychologist said to me, is maturity and not comfort or is maturity and not happiness, COVID actually fast tracks a process of maturity. Right. Un- unque- like without knowing it, I just, when he said that to me, I realized that for my whole 20s, I had been making happiness the ultimate thing in my life. I didn't know that I was doing that. And there was this subconscious kind of cultural narrative that says, You have a right to be happy. Your life should be comfortable. This should go well for you. And when it doesn't, it messes with you. And then you realize, actually, there's another economy at play. Like resurrection happens through crucifixion. Like Jesus' life was not comfortable. And I wouldn't characterize him as being a happy person. Like happiness is not how I think of Jesus, but but mature, you know, in union with the Father, seeing the purpose in suffering, seeing the redemption in suffering. Suddenly when we think of COVID, there's actually an opportunity here. And if we, if we step into that and ask ourselves, what's God trying to teach me, man, I think good things can happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's James chapter one, right? Yep. Like consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's so countercultural. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Often we don't know how to answer, how to, how to obey scriptures like that. Yeah, uh, but what you just said—it's so beautiful. It's so. Uh, it, I, I feel like I just need to rest in that for a little while, and, <laughs> and just to, just to think about it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, the idea that COVID has has some good in it um, is hard, but I think it's really true. Like everything he's saying is is really true. What what are we expecting out of life? That's the question being raised right now. Yeah. I feel like I could ask more and more questions about this season, um, but I'm I'm aware of the time. And I also want to just ask you, like, what you just said then is fantastic. If someone wanted to know, that's really great, what do I do with that? Mm. How would you answer? What do I do with COVID in particular or what do I do with if I'm wrestling with my own mental health? Well, kind of like what you were just saying before of like um, talking about the expectations that we have in life and it's like, well, we need to consider actually, well, what what are we entitled to and what do we get? But how does that become practical? How does that become more than just a pondering? Yeah, that's such a good question. I I think I'll start with a a paradigm and then I'll try and make it practical from there. I mean, if, if you're familiar with this Christian understanding of idolatry, 
turning this good thing into the ultimate thing as, as Tim Keller has made famous. Yeah. You know, when you, when you exchange a purpose for a blessing, I think that's when you start to go awry. And so it's very easy to go, well, oh, I'm meant to suffer. Life sucks. Life's always going to be hard. Actually, that's not my message. There are, there are so many blessings in life. Like I'm going to go home in half an hour and my kids are going to run to the door because they're at that stage of life and they're going to treat me like a hero. Like there is, there is so much beauty and there is so much blessing and there is so much good that happens in life. And we need to step into those blessings and realize that they come from God and be thankful to him for them. Mm-hmm. However, if my kid's happiness or my kid's joy is what I'm living most ultimately for, well, in a few years, they're going to be angsty teenagers who don't want a piece of me. <laughs> and, you know, what do I do then? And so I think it's it's not shying away from times of joy or times of plenty, but it's just realizing that times of plenty are not always the status quo for every day of your life. And so what does that mean in practice? I think it's it's okay to have less and it's okay, and, and this is a COVID thing as well, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to have some of our security removed. And rather than trying to, you know what it is, rather than trying to scramble to get back to how I was before COVID, I think asking the question, what might my life look like differently as a result of this doesn't have to be a threatening question. So in practical terms, I mean, it impacts how we use our money, you know, what we're saving up for, what we're putting our hope in, the kind of jobs we're pursuing, what we want most ultimately for our kids. Mm. That sense of entitlement, I think, has been shaken in the West, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And um, again, Romans 5 is just such an important text, I think, where Paul says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and it's hope that does not put us to shame. And, And that's the beauty of it, that out of suffering, we can actually find the kind of hope we were looking for all along. And so I guess to take stock of what are the things that are just letting you down? Like, what are the things that you're just finding aren't quenching the thirst? Is it, is it the job? Is it your marriage? Is it, is it your kids? Like, what's that thing that you just keep wanting to deliver so much and yet it just falls short? And whatever those things are, that's probably a good place to start to go, well, Am I putting more hope in that thing than I am in my identity in Christ that I know I'm loved by him and that my purpose is to to love him and love others? And I think if you have the integrity and the humility to ask that question, you're on the right track. Hmm. That's so refreshing. I love love that answer. So helpful. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for this conversation. Super helpful, super encouraging, and I really hope it's been encouraging for people listening also. Um, Chris, if they wanted to, if people wanted to hear more from you, what should they do? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the book is called Down Not Out, uh, subtitled Depression, Anxiety, and the Difference Jesus Makes. Um, I'd love you to get your hands on it. I mean, I wrote it because I didn't think it existed out there, and I just want to make myself very vulnerable for anybody who is feeling the same way and, and be blessed by the fact that God can bless you and use you uh, through that experience as he, as he has done for me. So you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle, uh, Kurong. Good Book Company is the publisher. You can go straight to their website. Um, I am also available for speaking. So I do a lot of speaking with this ministry. I love, well, I can't at the moment speak with churches, but uh, I can zoom in, all sorts of things. So my website, Um, You can book me in for an event.
And whether that's online during COVID or in person after COVID, uh, I'd love to hear from you and, and come and speak at whatever church service or Christian event you're putting on. I think it's a really important topic that we need to talk about more and very happy to occupy that space. Absolutely. And I hope people take you up on that. Thanks, Chris, for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Nathan. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Cipollone. And if you did, you should definitely buy his book. It's so encouraging and helpful. And it's a topic that I think we need to keep talking about. Just wanted to fill you in about something for the podcast. And I've been working on a new website to make it easier to get in touch and also to find all the show notes and information about all the guests that we have on. So that'll be up soon. Keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your feedback and get in touch. Uh, Yeah, please let me know any questions or thoughts or comments or feedback um, you have. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, enjoy grace. Bye. Conversations of Grace is brought to you by The Church Next Door in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to find out more, go to www.tcnd.com.au.